You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome to Season 2 of Turning to the Mystics. Today we're doing something a little different. Jim and I are here with Mirabai Starr, and she's going to join us for a dialogue about Teresa of Avila. Mirabai has translated The Interior Castle as well as Teresa of Avila, The Book of My Life. So she has a deep relationship and expertise around Teresa, and Jim and I are both excited about this discussion. Before we get started, let me tell you a little bit about Mirabai. Mirabai is an award-winning author of creative nonfiction and contemporary translations of sacred literature. She taught philosophy and world religions at the University of New Mexico Taos for 20 years and now teaches and speaks internationally on a contemplative practice and interspiritual dialogue. Her latest book, Wild Mercy, Living the Fierce and Tender Wisdom of the Women Mystics, was named one of the best books of 2019 by Spirituality and Practice. Mirabai is on the 2020 Watkins list of the 100 most spiritually influential living people of the world. She lives with her extended family in the mountains of northern New Mexico. And Mirabai has been a wonderful friend to the Centre for Action and Contemplation. She and Richard have a, a lovely friendship and she has joined us for many conferences uh, to lead practices and to speak and she actually joins Jim in our online course on the Interior Castle. So welcome, Mirabai. Welcome, Jim. We're, we're looking forward to our conversation today. Mirabai, before we get started, I thought it would be great if you could give us a little bit of background on yourself and how you came to be someone translating Christian mystics. Hmm. <laughs> I grew up in a non-religious Jewish household. My parents were kind of social justice activists, but not uh, interested in Judaism as a spiritual path, but more as a kind of model for for activating in the world on behalf of people on the margins. So I grew up with that consciousness around Judaism, and it was only later, um, you know, my early 20s that I began to explore Judaism as a spiritual path. Uh, but I also grew up with the Eastern traditions, Hinduism and Buddhism, and then eventually Sufism, the mystical branch of Islam, pretty much everything except Christianity. And then um, finally, when I was, I was around 20, I was living in Spain, in Sevilla, studying Spanish literature, and I encountered San Juan de la Cruz, St. John of the Cross, and his poetry, his ecstatic love poetry to God. And it aligned very much with my Sufi practices and studies. So I really recognized his love language. And began when I began teaching philosophy and religious studies at the University of New Mexico, I always used John of the Cross, but especially Dark Night of the Soul, which had been a deeply moving text for me personally. And my students just weren't connecting with it. So finally, a colleague of mine suggested that I try translating it. I was in my late 30s at that point, and I did. So I began with the poem, uh, Noche Oscura del Alma, 
or Canciones del Alma, Songs of of the Soul, which was this love poem that that just poured out of John of the Cross when he what when he escaped from prison for his reform activities with Teresa of Avila. And then from there, the the sisters, the nuns for whom he was confessor, prevailed upon him to write a prose commentary, an explication of that poem as a guide for the spiritual journey. And he did. And so there's this this exquisite prose commentary that we know of as Dark Night of the Soul. So my publisher actually said after that, look, nobody knows John of the Cross in the mainstream, maybe in the Catholic Church and scholars and so on. But Teresa of Avila, people are intrigued by. Why don't you translate her next? And I was like, oi, <laughs> I'm not interested in her. You know, she's just too flamboyant. John of the Cross is a true contemplative like me. Teresa's just, it, it's all flash and fire. But I agreed to do it. And lo and behold, Teresa Vavila became my deepest spiritual companion. So I translated the interior castle. And um, at a time in my life when I deeply needed everything she had to say, and she became, yeah, really um, a part of my team of allies and ancestors and advocates that that I carry with me. And then I was able, uh, I was given the opportunity to translate her life. And um, so the the Christian mystics have it, through this John of the Cross translation. They have all opened up to me, and through them, this relationship with Christ has opened. Uh, that's the very the very distilled version of that journey. I hope I didn't take too long. Oh no. Thank you. Thank you, Mirabai. Um, that was beautiful. And uh today we are going to be focusing on what you learned in translating Teresa's book, um, Teresa of Avila, The Book of My Life, and some of the some of the ways her life experiences led her into this mystical awakening and and the beautiful teaching that we're going through in the interior castle. Wonderful. Love it. So, uh, Jim, did you want to weigh in on where we're yeah, headed? Yeah, well, just a brief word about how I met Mirabai. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I was aware of her, right, just of her work, of her work, the God of love, on these kind of love traditions of God. And likewise, it resonated with me and with these nuptial mystics and the Christianity, this... Um, marital imagery for mystical union, and then Sufism, and then Bhakti Yoga also. So then uh, Father Ron Rawheiser invited us to come speak there at his place there in Texas to give a weekend retreat, Mirabai and I, and it's the first time we met in person, and just developed this natural sense of affinity with each other and residence personally, along with um, the, the spiritual bonds. So then when we started the podcast on Teresa, she was a natural kind of tie-in. And then especially what we're focusing on today, on this idea of for each of these mystics and how it applies to us, what are the autobiographical foundations of her mystical realizations? See, how does our life, uh, the story of her life, uh, was the birthing of these insights and realizations, and then how can they be the birthing in us in our life? How can we discern these awakenings in our life? 
And so that's, for me, the context of our time here today. Yeah. Mm. Thank you, Jim. So, Mirabai, you're going to get us started with uh, reflecting on some of the things you learned about Teresa, some of these key elements. Yes, thank you. And thanks, Jim, for that sweet introduction and memory. You know, you mentioned... Jim Bhakti Yoga, which is the path of devotion in the Hindu tradition. And part of that yogic tradition and part of the Bhakti path is about, is about cultivating an intimate relationship with a guru. And what I find as a translator of the mystics is that that's what's happening. There is this feeling of direct transmission. I hope I don't sound too woo-woo here, but in Hinduism, it's called darshan. And in darshan, right, you're sitting at the feet of the master receiving direct transmission. And every time I've translated one of these mystical masterpieces, John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, Julian of Norwich, I have had this feeling that I was sitting at their feet and receiving their teachings as blessings, being showered with their blessings. Like you cannot enter into their language, their mystical language, and uh, and dare to to convey it uh, without f- having a, a truly intimate relationship with them. That is life-changing, and that has certainly been the case for me. So I was thinking about when um when I began translating the life of Teresa of Avila, which was my second translation, I did the interior castle first, and it was it was such a joy. In fact, I I always called it dessert <laughs> after translating Dark Night of the Soul and the Interior ca- Castle, which are theologically so dense and intense and wonderful. Um, the book of my life was just like a romp, you know, her story that it's one of the true coming-of-age stories of a mystic that is just a classic. And and I related to so much of it. For instance, she starts off very early on by talking about um, when she was a little girl, she and her brother would repeat the word forever over and over and over again until they just catapulted themselves into an altered state of consciousness. Just by virtue of repeating this word, you know, you could do it with any word, you know, bubble gum. I mean, I suppose, and send yourself into an altered state, but by saying the word forever. So I've always pictured her as this little girl, you know, maybe five, six, seven years old, and and she's saying forever, and she begins to turn in circles, holding up her arm, like a dervish in the Sufi tradition, you know, turning, whirling forever, 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 until the the boundaries of her individual consciousness dissolved into the one and that was her first taste of mystical union and i was thinking well i had little girl experiences like that you know that sounded familiar to me that all of us you know i know jim you have said this too we are all mystics that is our birthright that is to have unitive experiences with the beloved with the one where the the subject object distinction dissolves into this coexistence what julian of norwich called winning she so beautifully invented that term winning and that this that many of us can think back into our childhood experiences of those moments 
um, which just reminds us that it belongs to all of us, the mystical, the mystical world, that world of union. So I thought I would start there with our childhood, early childhood experiences, tastes, fragrances of unitive consciousness, of, of love, of that all-encompassing love. And then I have a few more stories up my sleeve. I'll chime in with what that resonates in me then with Teresa. Um, you know, when I think of my own life and uh, how I came into all of this and what led me to the monastery, uh, and then when I left the monastery and started leading retreats and talking to people on silent retreats and in psychotherapy too, it's very interesting how frequently people will allude back to early childhood moments of a certain sense of intimately realized wonder, you know, like a, like a realm of presence, you know, that kind of, it's preconceptual, that is, it's before we conceptualize anything. And it somehow opens out on transconceptual realizations, like this realm of wholeness. And um, then as we go through life sometimes, uh, we lose touch with it. But when we reinstate ourselves in it, in silent prayer, devotional sincerity, Jesus, unless you accept the kingdom of heaven as a small child, you shall not enter it. There's a certain childlike sincerity or a certain childlike transparency, like the sincerity of childlike devotional sincerity is the gate of heaven. And then how do we integrate that sincerity into our adult experience and deepen it and, and so on? So I, I think she's just touching here on something for all of us to look back to these moments that maybe we lost touch with along the way. And she's reminding us to look back these kind of foreshadowings that were precursors to our present path that we're on and how mysterious that is for all of us. I love that she, that that's the first thing she tells in the book of my life, like with, on page you know, five or six or something. Because what's happening, by the way, with the book of my life, I think I should mention, is that it wasn't like at age 45, Teresa suddenly decided that she wanted to write her memoirs because she had such an interesting life. In fact, a lot of the interesting part of her life happened, in my mind, after the age of 45. But the Inquisition insisted that she document all of these un seemingly unorthodox visions and voices and raptures and ecstasies that she was having. And that coupled with her the, her blood being tainted by Judaism, <laughs> no, known to have come from a, a converso family, a family forced to convert by the Inquisition, and just the generation before, this was a this was a document of her experiences to prove that her that her experiences in fact were gifts from God and not tricks of the devil or artifacts of mental illness, right? So that this is an actual document for the for the Inquisition, and they asked her to go as far back as she could remember um, to start telling what what these experiences were, and that that was her first one, and she went that far back. So yes, I think you're right. I think many of us can remember those moments of those precognitive unitive experiences and then how and they started us on our path whether there was a long delay or not um, but how do we integrate them into our adult experiences so yes this is it i just wanted to mention that the that this was how this book was written was she was it vow of obedience she had to write it 
Mirabai, do you know how long it took her to write this one? Well, she wrote everything so fast. You know, I know the interior castle was written in like three months, right, Jim? Something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. With looking up, you know, there's that famous painting of her looking up, not even looking at the at the paper or parchment or whatever. Uh, but I think the book of my life was also fairly yeah. quick. You know, she definitely wasn't known for uh, editing herself. So mm-hmm. that's why she has well, translators. <laughs> I, I, I took it upon myself to edit you know, edit a little along the way. It, yeah. Although I love the digression she makes in both of those books. You know, I don't know about The Way of Perfection. I'm not as familiar with it. But in the book of my life in the interior castle, she goes off on these delightful tangents. And then she says things like, whoops. I mean, she doesn't say whoops, <laughs> but that's basically what she's saying. Like, oh, I certainly went off on a, on a little journey there. Let's see if I can bring myself back because I've completely forgotten what I was talking about. She's so human. Mm-hmm. She's so human. That's mm-hmm. what I love about her. And that's what I think so many people love about her and what we can all relate to, especially women, is this uniquely unleashed, feminine, warm, intimate, practical, grounded, and yet ecstatic kind of mind and heart that she has. Mm-hmm. It really shows her trust in God that she was being, um, or and the trust in her experiences, because she was being tested, and the consequences could be terrible for her if if people didn't believe she was truly having these uh, experiences of God. And so the fact that she wrote so quickly, that she, she was vulnerable and honest about what was happening for her, just shows a level of trust um, that that was deep and honest and. Uh, and that obviously came through to the people who were testing her. Yes, it did. They all fell in love with her and and became her her students, I think, the Inquisitors. But, you know, the other thing about that, Kirsten, I'm so glad you brought that up, is that she, her truths, her experiences were self-verifying. I mean, she'd like to just do what the dudes told her, you know, <laughs> but it it just the the inner authority was stronger sorry guys you know this is i am subjecting all my own experiences to the laser of self inquiry like you don't even mm. have to bother with this this interrogation business because i'm already doing it myself she had a fierce mind too where she she really uh, grappled with every one of her mystical experiences to winnow out the the truth you know julian of norwich also she her authority came from christ appearing to her and giving her these revelations and she said you know i always have been a faithful daughter of holy mother church and i would like to just believe what they tell me but you know sorry christ told me differently and that's that's my authority that inner wow. authority, that inner relationship with the divine. I was going to say something else about Teresa, <clears throat> all these classical mystics also, is this delicate balance of these themes that we're raising. You know, so for example, there's this kind of openness to these first childlike uh, premonitions or tastes that we carry forward, but at the same time then integrating it into mature understandings that we don't stay back there in immature, even sometimes infantile articulations, but we don't break the thread of the original simplicity either as we go for She always has that balance about her. And the same with the masculine and the feminine. Um, 
as a woman mystic, there is this feminine, this anima, this ani, female thing. But you also see in Teresa a very strong animus, male presence. There's a story about her where she had to always raise money for the foundations. And she's meeting with one of the bishops, I think, or somebody. And she uh, drove a hard bargain getting them to get the money. And when they walked out, one said to the other, she should have a beard. That is, she has more machismo than we do. You know, she's more, she has a lot of huspa. <laughs> and uh, so there was this deeply feminine, integrated animus about her. And there's that balance for all of us, you know, the, the integration of the anima and animus in all of us as the integrated human being in the divinity that incarnates and transcends both. Like that. And thirdly, also about the church, is that she listened to this voice, which is the prophetic voice uh, of the mystic, you know, this original fire of the unexplainable. You know. But at the same time, she was always circling back that everything she said was true to the spirit of the Catholic tradition. She never broke with it. But at the same time, she didn't, she didn't stop at the level of dogmatic definitions but saw dogma as metaphors for mystical realizations through the sacraments, through prayer. And so she always said, Thomas Merton does this too, you see this with these mystics, they're always trying to be true to the essence of the church. But the essence of the church prophetically goes deeper sometimes than those who hold the authority within the church. It's like with Jesus, a lot of the arguments people had against Jesus was the authority of the Pharisees. And they kept quoting, quoting scripture to him. And so Jesus was always true to the essence of Torah, to the essence of the prophets, that prophetically transcends these locked-in things. And I think Teresa holds that nice balance on all three of those, which are lessons for all of us, I think. Yeah, yeah. beautiful, Jim. I agree. Before we move on from that first point, I, I did just want to note, you know, the, the I think both of you talk about like finding your teachers and I love Mirabai, you're talking about the community of teachers and ancestors that help us kind of connect into our own experiences. And I know part of my childhood experience was to live, uh, my father was bipolar, very challenging childhood dynamic. And so my memory is not so much of these beautiful, wondrous experiences, but through diving deep into Jim's teaching, finding God in the midst, when I look back, are sustaining me in ways that, that I didn't connect to at the time but can connect to quite deeply looking back. And so sometimes the early childhood experiences, the presence of God always there, you know, depending on where, what your starting point is. Jim's been a great teacher for those of us who started with trauma. Yes. Um, yes, thank you for making that point, Kirsten, because – yeah, it, not everybody has the privilege of wonderment in their childhood. Where the wonderment's mingled with sadness and terror. There's like an alchemy for some children. Also interesting with Teresa, in the Sixth Mansion, she talks about the traumatizations of unconsummated longings and being misunderstood, as if somehow deep suffering's woven right into the alchemy of the path. It's just how and when each of us experiences that alchemy is unique to each of us. And uh, so it's another thing about her, I think. Yes, beautiful. And of course, you know, the sixth mansion or dwelling morada yeah. is the precursor to total union. It's just, That's get, right. they, what do they say in Sufism? The lions at the gates get 
fiercer the closer you get to home or something. Yeah. 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 Turning to the mystics will continue in a moment. I was thinking about her first vision. So, of course, everyone, I'm sure, uh, listening knows that that one of the things Teresa of Avila is most known for is having these visions, visions and raptures and ecstasies and locutions, voices. Um, and one of her first visions was of Christ's hands. And my friend, Father Bill McNichols, uh, the iconographer, uh, was my reader for all my translations. You know, I would I would give them to him because he was he is a Catholic priest, and I am a Jewish Sufi Buddhist Hindu pagan, and so I needed a little, you know, just somebody who understood. And he loves the mystics and knows them deeply, so he would read everything. And when he read, when I was translating the book of my life, and he read the ch- this section that I call his hands, which is her vision of Christ's hands, he. He wrote an icon or painted an icon, but of course it's called icon writing uh, of Teresa. I have it on my on my um, altar, a shrine upstairs, and it's a it's an image of Teresa. You can look a, a Father Bill art or something if you Google it, you'll find it. Uh, so I have the original um, picture of Teresa with beholding Christ's hands with the stigmata, and it's. And it, it was because Father Bill was so deeply moved by this story that he had to create this icon. And um, to my great fortune. So what was the vision? The vision was was of his hands and with the accompanying message that in his infinite mercy he understood that she could not glori- uh, she could not handle his entire glorified form all at once so the first time he revealed himself he just showed her his hands and that that was an act of generosity of kindness of mercy and then it helped sort of prepare her for a full vision of his entire glorified form as she says and there's something about that that's so tender and i saw it through father bill's eyes the fact that he was moved to tears by that experience that she had and and so now it moves me and i and i wonder you know what how how that all the places in my life where i wanted very much to eat the whole enchilada at once <laughs> and and but that's not the you know that's not safe or healthy like i had to do some work also before i could uh, grow my capacity for certain kinds of unitive experiences and that the holy one is kind of co co-creating with us this, the conditions in which we can experience union that we're in this together that it's this beautiful blend of rigor discipline and grace loving grace so that's the seed i want to plant with that story that's very lovely i I, connotations for me and teresa on that you know uh, a couple things one when you think of her visions kind of ecstatic visionary with visions and I always look for ways of how can we understand our touchstone with that, 
So we might say, I don't have visions. And maybe, okay. But you know, in a way, there's another way of looking at this too, in which dreams are visions. And dreams are often visions of reality. That is, it's a story, it's a vision, like an image. And by decoding the meaning of the story, it reveals us to ourselves. And so, in a way, the artist, like a visual mystic, like the artist brings out into the open something they interiorly saw. And sitting in the presence of the art, they help us to see it too. So, it's almost like the, the visual artistry of God through images. And she's getting this kind of graced intensity of this mystical imagery, but there's the continuum where all images are images that are grantings of the divine in visual form. And likewise with locutions. We might say, I don't hear voices in that sense. But sometimes we can be with someone we love very much who's in pain, and we say something that's helpful, and we don't know how we knew how to say that. And so there's interlocutions, like there's inner, there's inner grantings. And I think she's helping us, if we calibrate our heart to a fine enough scale, we can see the mystical intimations of, of these things in our own interiority like that. And um, so I, I think that's a good, that's a helpful thing. And also another thing about the hands is... Uh, you know, I'll say this as a therapist first. In, when you're working with a trauma person, they were overwhelmed. And the therapist may see very clearly where they need to go and what they need to feel. But they can also be traumatized if they get to the trauma too fast. And so the therapist is kind of guardian of the process to incrementally expose them to. But likewise, it's also true there's a joy we cannot yet bear. And so sometimes there's this, there's this kind of conversational unfolding where the infinite wisdom of a tenderness gives us a peek through a crack in the door. See? So once we internalize it and get the, the glow of it, then we're open for more. And even when we are overwhelmed, as we sometimes are, she talks about this, we're overwhelmed, we realize we're being lovingly overwhelmed, like we're being watched over. and. Uh, and so, we're, so how can we join God in this kind of graced tenderness where our finite heart is being transformed into this infinite love? And, and she's like, a, like, she's brilliant at that. Just, you get the feeling if you could sit with her in person and talk about these things, you'd be in good hands. You know, yeah. and she really, you'd be with this very, very safe person. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so beautiful, Jim. I love, I love that. Uh, what I uh, reflect on as I'm listening to the two of you is just um, building a sense of kind of patience for the the graced path that it's it's there's a, there's a kind of patience required. But I like this story of Teresa because when the when the breakthroughs come in the midst of the patience or the devotion, um, that they come at the at the right pace at the right time and. In the you know in, in the most helpful way, and uh, I think a lot of the spiritual path for me has has been that um, building the muscle of patience and letting go of what I would where I would like to be and what I would like to be able to to achieve or or be in the world. Yeah. Yes. Mirabai, next reflection. 
you have? Eating partridge. <laughs> <laughs> so there's this famous apocryphal story, I don't know, a story about Teresa, where I think the the group of sisters and maybe a couple of priests or one anyway, had come back from one of their expeditions in Spain by donkey cart when during the reform period when Teresa was um, creating these, founding these monasteries for men and convents for women in the discalced Carmelite reform uh, tradition that she was creating. And uh, they came back and it was late and everybody was tired and one of the sisters came down to the convent kitchen at night after this journey to make a cup of tea. And there was Madre Teresa, Mother Teresa, sitting um, at a bench in the kitchen, just tucking into a roasted partridge that someone had, had brought to her. And she was just eating with great gusto. And this, And the nun was rather scandalized by this because she felt like... Um, eating should be done very modestly. And uh, and she said, oh, mother, you know, uh, excuse me, I didn't realize you were you were eating and with such gusto. And, and Teresa could tell that the, the sister had a judgment about, about this. And Teresa slapped her hand down on the table and she said, hija, <laughs> when praying, pray. When eating partridge, eat partridge. And I love that because, I love that so much, because it shows Teresa's earthiness, for one thing, that she does, that non-duality that, you know, that Jim, you've spoken about with her, there's non-duality in action. She does not make a distinction, a formal distinction between contemplative prayer as a, as a prescribed spiritual practice and life. You know, it's that Jewish part, chayim, life, you know, everything is holy, food, sex, um, every, inebriation, <laughs> it's all sacred, you know, and Richard, of course, talks all the time about panentheism and every particle of creation being imbued with, with holiness, and Teresa, I think, embodies that. She also famously said, God lives among the pots and pans, and I think a lot of people, especially women, are so grateful for those kinds of the partridge stories and the sayings like God lives among the pots and pans because it blesses our ordinary experience as the very ground of where the holy reveals itself. And that when we, the other thing about the partridge story, of course, it's a, is about one-pointedness, about showing up and being fully present, whether you're washing the dishes or, you know, singing hymns that, it is, or receiving communion, or making love. It, if we can be present for maybe not all, but most of our life, our activities, our relationships, then there is an opportunity for every moment to be a mystical encounter of some kind. Yes, I, I you know, uh, my first thought listening to you is that. Uh, it's interesting for Teresa, and she gets to the seventh mansion, and um, she uses this image at the end of the sixth mansion on, on spiritual betrothal, where there's two candles burning. Yes, I love God's that. God's candle, and then here's your candle. So she says, in spiritual betrothal, 
when in optimal conditions in prayer, the two flames touch and they're one flame. See? But when there's distraction, when there's hardship, when there's, they separate. Come on. She said, but in the seventh mansion, it's not like that anymore. And she, she said, it's like the rain falling from the sky into the river. And you can't tell the water that fell from the sky from the water in the river. And you and God can't tell each other apart from each other anymore. So what you discover is the divinity of the intimate immediacy of the concreteness of life itself is holy. And gradations of holiness are really gradations of our awareness of that. Mm. And the more we're liberated from those limitations through this being transformed in love, the more we see the all-abiding constancy of incarnate infinity in the ordinariness of life itself. You know? And I think that's a big, that's a big, huge lesson. Beautiful. Yeah. And and do you think she would say um, part of the way you learn to eat partridge is through the prayer and contemplation? Like it's the it's it's the rhythm of the devotion and the practice that allows you, or, or helps you, supports you, getting to that place where now I'm eat, I'm really eating partridge. I'm I'm fully present to, to that moment and the holiness of it. That is so insightful, Kirsten. That's exactly right, I think. I mean, I suppose mm. you could have that ability to be present, cultivate that kind of, of presence, that mindfulness, that heartfulness, without a contemplative practice, but it it really helps so much to to be able to. For one thing, right, when we're, we're sitting in, in contemplative prayer, centering prayer, or meditation, whatever we may call it, um, we learn the nature of the mind and the turmoil of thoughts, as Teresa calls it, and we're not as likely to take those distractions seriously, to buy into them, to believe everything we think. And that certainly hones our capacity for, for being present. Yes, you know, Jim, I... Can I read, you guys, can I read that tiny passage you were just talking about from um, from the interior castle where Teresa talks about the union? Yeah. Yes, please. Be good, be good yes, please. Uh, so this is from, I can't remember exactly where, but you know it's at the end of Sixth Mansion, I guess, um, of the interior castle. In total union, no separation is possible. The soul remains perpetually in that center with her God. We could say that the other union, so, okay, right, she's talking about the seventh dwelling and and the the consummation of, this, of the spiritual marriage. But prior to that, there are the intimations, there are experiences where we go in and out of these unitive spaces. So we could say, she says, that that other union is like pressing two softened candles together so that their twin flames yield a single light. This is my translation, so it might be a little unfamiliar to you. Or we could say that the wick, the wax, and the flame are all the same. But afterward, one candle can easily be separated from the other. Now they are two candles again. Likewise, the wick can be withdrawn from the wax. The spiritual marriage, on the other hand, is like rain falling from the sky into a river or pool. There is nothing but water. It's impossible to divide the sky water from the land water. When a little stream enters the sea, who could separate its waters back out again? 
Think of a bright light pouring into a room from two large windows. It enters from different places, but becomes one light. I love that passage. Yeah, beautiful. That's beautiful. I like it also, I'm thinking an echo in Meister Eckhart, speaking of this unitive state. Uh, one of the commentators says, Eckhart's trying to help us realize what happens when you encounter the same. That is, everything's the same. That is, without God, it's absolutely nothing. But in the truth of things, it's God's manifested presence. And um, through this transformation in love, we fall into that uh, divine field of uh, the divinity of the immediacy of everything, intimately realized. I also like how she says at the very end of the state she's talking about, she said, for such a person, there's only one question left. How can I be helpful? Yes, exactly. It's a beautiful way to end. It's a beautiful way to end. She circles back around. She's in this sublime seventh mansion, mystical married state. And for such a person, you know, can I help you with the dishes? You know, you seem troubled. What's going on? You know, can I? Because she sees that the, the, the incomprehensible stature of the smallest of things is God's presence. And she's, she's, um, supple you know she's she moves with the flow of that that's a lovely thing too it's it's the action and contemplation yes once you've had union the only thing that makes sense is to offer yourself in service to the world and that's when her vision stopped too all of it you know all the the sort of supernatural phenomena fell away and she didn't need it anymore and she got on with with being of service in her reform yeah. movement. That's right. And I, I think the reason, they say that in Buddhism too, where these experiences stop, you know. But I think it's because you you realize now the, the concrete immediacy of everything is God's vision. That is, God's dream is the intimate immediacy. And you don't need a vision over a top of that, like a heightened thing. It's the divinity of the immediacy of that. And there's no need for another layer of something over above the infinity of the ordinary. And it's like God in all directions, concretely. And uh, that's it. I also think people listening to these podcasts, that the very reason they're drawn to this is means they're already on the path of realizing this. That is in this arc of transformation. The very fact that such language speaks to us it means we're already being interiorly led along this unitive path. And I think that's an encouraging word for all of us, for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I always feel when, when we have uh, these conversations about someone like Teresa where there's a bit of a bait and switch because you feel like you're entering in this amazing truth and beauty kind of beyond, 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 and, you know, there'll be no suffering and there'll be no – and then – and then suddenly where they land is um, deep in the suffering of the world, active, um, being mistreated. She was mistreated by the church. And so um, so I think there's the aspiration for me personally, this aspiration of kind of the beauty, the truth, and the oneness, but then also um, how can I build in the 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 knowledge that actually it's what's happening in the world, the suffering in the world that connects me to God as well. And so to not lose sight of that. 
Yes, beautiful, beautiful. And Mirabai, to to go from this this unitive consciousness, then back out into the world. Um, Teresa obviously had a great analysis. I mean, she put a lot of effort into analyzing what was happening in the church, looking at where suffering was taking place. So there was a lot of hard work around knowing what justice was required. Is is that right in the way she approached it? Yeah. So, and, you know, she certainly didn't use any of that kind of language, nor did she ever refer to the fact that the Inquisition was causing great suffering to Jews and Muslims. Um, but there was there was this sense of uh, that her own suffering was integral to her path of awakening and therefore to to the service that she was offering to others, you know, that was rooted in an understanding of the human condition being, you know, aligned with the Buddha's first noble truth of, of life being characterized by a series of, of disappointments and disconnections. And, you know, Teresa herself, as you, as you alluded to, suffered greatly at the, at the hands of the institutions to which she belonged. And, and felt deeply misunderstood most of her life. There, it's interesting, there was some scandal when she was around 16, which is why her father sent her off to, to a convent. This, her mother died when she was 12. Uh, her mother died in childbirth with her like ninth child at the age of 33. This is what Teresa witnessed. And at that point, she kind of gave herself over to Mother Mary and said, that that Mary appeared to her and said, "You, I will be your mother now," and and that gave her great comfort. But but there was this deep radical loss at a young age, and she, like many teenagers uh, who are um, what would it be untethered, she became a wild child, and she did all kinds of things, and her father could not control her father who adored her. And at one point, there was something scandalous that happened. And the scandal could be anything from. You know, walking in the garden unchaperoned with a boy to losing her virginity. We really don't know what happened. But later in life, when she's just being battered by the Inquisition and by the church and by the bishops, um, and there are all these accusations. I think she's already in her 60s, maybe, Jim, at this point. She's being accused of all kinds of ridiculous things, you know, sexual you know, misconduct, <laughs> things like that. And she just laughs it off and she says, you know, you guys can say whatever you want about me. Nobody's even mentioning the the true sins of my youth. <laughs> if they only knew what I actually had done, these stories would just be nothing. But um but what I wanted to say about about the suffering, this this question of the human condition that Teresa so beautifully models is that I think many of us, and Jim is a therapist, I know this will resonate with you. I think for many of us, as you said, trauma is intermingled with glimpses of the holy. And grief and loss, which we all experience, and right now in the time of COVID and the time of Black Lives Matter re- resurgence of this awareness of, of justice and injustice, there's this, this um, opening, this portal that is making itself available to us where we can recognize that intermingling of suffering and the sacred. And in Teresa's life, there were 
The deaths of her parents were hugely significant to her. First, the death of her mother when she was 12, that probably launched her into her spiritual path, really. And then this, she was very close to her father. And when she left for the, when she joined the convent at 18 and took holy orders, her father was, was um, in despair, you know, because it's like, you might as well have just have dug her grave. And because it was a cloistered monastery, I mean, convent, and he wouldn't really get to ever be with her again except through the grill. Um, but f- when he died, but then he became her most devoted student of contemplative prayer. Her father did. Mm-hmm. He studied with, with her, and she taught him the path of mental prayer, contemplative prayer. And, and, he was, and he just flourished in this practice. And then when he died, Teresa felt nothing. I mean, she was sorry that he was gone, but she had no actual emotional experience she says in the book of my life around it and and she judged herself for that as she often judged herself for her lack of emotionality do you know that jim like she Mm -hmm. she just right and the and the sisters you know she would see them bursting into tears and in during um in the in the chapel and she would just think they were ridiculous and that it was emotionality and it wasn't real spiritual um spiritual feeling it was something more superficial but then finally when she had that what they call her second conversion in the convent hallway when she encounters the statue of of christ and accidentally catches his eye and and perceives this unconditional love intermingled with the suffering he's it's christ's being scourged right at the pillar and breaks her open and she's suddenly she's like prostrate on the floor stone floor of this hallway at the feet of this statue and she's weeping and she's weeping tears of decades really two decades of of spiritual aridity from age say 20 to 40 in the convent when she felt basically nothing including her father's death and then suddenly the floodgates open of love for Christ and feeling his love for her and demanding in her typical um, bluster that I'm not moving until you can promise me, dude, that you will never let me stop loving you like this. And in that opening of love, and he kept his promise for the rest of her life, in that opening of love, she was finally able to feel her grief for her father's death again. And all the losses, the health challenges, and the um, the the injustices that were foisted upon her uh, in her life, and and so sometimes that the one grief or one experience of loss or one one experience of the heart being disarmed um, will allow for. I know as a therapist, you're very aware of this, Jim, and probably in your own life too, as I am, this, all the other losses, all the other sufferings are, are all present and we're able to feel them and transform them through love in those moments. Yes, lovely. I, I want to chime in with that too, another insight through Teresa and then to us about the, the, the alchemy of love and suffering. You know, for all these mystics, and this is true of all the world traditions, too, the mystics teach that the, if we think of trauma as a wound, a source of suffering, 
that the, the day-by-day experience of ourself in ego consciousness, we labor under a traumatized state of the traumatized capacity to live in habitual consciousness with the all-sustaining love, giving itself to us as every breath and heartbeat. That's the one thing that's happening, is this love pouring itself out as our body, as our life. And it's the fact that we're exiled from that. So in, 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 the, Catholic, in the Christian tradition, as original sin, not as a blight on the soul, but as exile. In Buddhism, it's ignorance. For Jesus, it's blindness. You have eyes to see and you don't see. It's in that exiled, blind state, fear arises and confusion arises. And then we act it out on all the traumatizing things we do to each other. And so what happens for Teresa, I think, is in the mystical depth dimension is the healing of the primal wound of this constancy and love that transcends the darkness of this world. But it transcends it by heightening our compassion for it. And so it moves us to, 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 uh, to touch with tender-hearted compassion the wounded places in ourself and others. And, 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 but grounded in a peace is not dependent on the outcome of our efforts. Because it's a peace that's not dependent on anything. You know, it's in the holiness of the encounter of liberation incarnate as caring. And I, I think that kind of balance is another delicate thing about Teresa and having our heart broken open by love. We've been rendered whole by having love broken us open. So we can no longer live on our terms, we live on love's terms. And in being broken, our hearts poured out towards ourself, other people, all sentient beings, as the Buddhists would say. And I think that's true of all these mystics. You see that paradoxical alchemy of the vertical depth dimensions of suffering and love and how it is healing that heightens our sensitivity to all suffering, but in a peace not dependent on our efforts to remove it, because it's not dependent on anything. It's the love of God that sustains us all unexplainably, come what may. And I think that's another insight through Teresa, too. Beautiful. It strikes me, um, that movement that you described, Mirabai, from um, being very judgmental uh, about herself, even her her lack of emotion, her lack of grief, how how judgmental and uh, how she was, and then in that moment, in the release and the grief and the, um, she drops into a depth of compassion, but drawing from a source of compassion beyond herself. And, uh, I do, I do think, um, we can be so hard on ourselves and cut, cut ourselves off from that compassion by those voices and judgments and, um, so how to find those moments to let 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 go of that for a moment and and let love in. Mm, beautiful. Yes. Yeah. I, I'm also struck, uh, Mirabai, when you um, were reading from the Interior Castle and the way Teresa used just these beautiful examples: water, light, fire, the the silkworm and the the butterfly. And I mean, she was really brilliant at offering insights into things that are so hard to explain through what she could see in the real world. Mm, yes, she's very, she was very sensual, very 
Um, to me, this is a, a certain kind of feminine wisdom that she was very grounded in in the body and in sensory experience. Uh, yeah, and she, I mean, even when she came up with the four waters of prayer in, in the book of my life, which she then later expands on in, in the interior castle, she when she wrote about that, she she just burst into, this is these asides that I was referring to. She burst into this squeal of delight on the page where she says, I've never come up with something so perfectly to <laughs> describe the experience of, you know, the path of, of prayer. And she just, she um, delights herself with, with the images that she comes up with, even the interior castle itself, that, that vision of the soul as this beautiful radiant diamond like um place that <clears throat> is the most beautiful place in all of creation so of course the holy one would choose to dwell at the center of that of that gorgeousness and you know all of these things are are these metaphors are very vivid in fact there's a place in the interior castle i think or i can't might be in the book of my life where she says i feel sorry for people who don't have images of Christ and Mary and the saints in their lives because these pictures are are the my windows they're my or doorways into an intimate connection with with these beings my friend father bill tells me that there was an, another a backstory there where john of the cross who was very much a non-dualist convinced teresa that she was too attached to images and that she should take down all her pictures and just try to have a, a direct connection with with the undifferentiated reality of God, and so she did, and she lasted, you know, a day, and then she had to put them all back up because she just it, she felt like she was betraying her beloved by stripping away these images. She understood that they were not the ultimate, you know, they they were fingers pointing at the moon, as they say in Buddhism, and not the moon itself. But she also says. I'll try to wrap it up here because I, I could go on forever. But she also says that when she was in prayer, she liked to have a book with her. Right, Jim? You know this? She liked to have mm -hmm. a book right next to her. She said, I didn't even have to read it, although reading it would help me then recollect, you know, the prayer of recollection, recollect myself so that I could be with the friend or the beloved in, in the interior of my soul. Um, but so some, so I'd read sometimes other times I didn't need to read just knowing it was there would help collect my consciousness, my thoughts to that one pointedness where I could be with, with God. So she wasn't, she was a cataphatic mystic and John was an apophatic mystic and yet they met, you know, in, in my new book, Wild Mercy, I kind of talk about this Mobius strip of, of du duality and non-duality or cataphatic and apophatic that that mystics are both you know they're grounded in uh, life experience and all of our particular um, incarnation and embodiment and that becomes as you said Kirsten earlier about contemplative prayer becomes the the way to experience God in everything back out off the cushion and in in the world so it's this beautiful feedback loop that i think teresa embodies very um elegantly yeah did you know that story about john of the cross jim uh, telling her to take the pictures down no i didn't know that one no so you know what's interesting too what mirabai is saying is that 
if the if the apophatic is the hiddenness, like the night, we, we find our way to God through a passage through a dark night, oh night lovelier than the dawn. And then the cataphatic is this manifested order, like the the transfiguration or the eye, the light, the manifested divinity. Wherever you have one, the other is always there. So, for example, Teresa says in the sixth mansion, in these deepened ecstasies and raptures of the sixth mansion, God shows the soul's uh, treasures. And she says, the treasures you know intimately in seeing them, but after the ecstasy is over, there are no words for the treasures that you know. So she's always aware of the hiddenness of the manifested. Likewise, when you read John of the Cross, the sensuality of the encounter with, with uh, Jesus, the love, that, the night that turns the lover and the beloved into each other. You see that cataphatic uh, love mysticism, you know, that's the incarnate, uh, the love energy of the hidden. So it's interesting with these mystics, for all of us too, wherever you see the one, uh, the other one's always with it, because God's the infinity of the interplay of the two, you know, the hidden manifested mystery of our hearts and Anyway, it's another key theme, I think, for her. Yes. Well, this brings us back to where we started, which is Teresa offers this way of acknowledging our experience beyond just what we think or what we know, but the full-bodied experience is um, where we find a lot of the truth and the way she brought that back through these experiences of we could watch a candle, we could... And, and even in her descriptions of them, there's an experience that, that can happen that's well beyond a thought. It's a, it's a sense of warmth, a sense of love, a sense of something deeper, a sense of something more, more wonderful. I want to share a story someone shared with me at a retreat. This is a person in AA in recovery. And her father incested her. He was very violent and so on. And when he was dying... She went to the country where he lived. And when he was in the hospital, she has to stay in the room with him. And so she spent the night in a chair next to his bed, and his labor, his breathing was labored, and the light was coming in through the window. And she was listening to her father's dying father's labor, and she started sobbing, just sobbing. And she said that moment with her dying father changed her whole life. And I think Teresa is trying to open us up to that, you know what I mean? Where like the breaking open of everything in some unexplainable way that turns you into a vulnerable, amazed, grateful person. And I think Teresa's always, she's so self-disclosing and she invites us to be self-disclosing about that part, our raw and beautiful heart, like Chalkin Trumper Rinpoche mm. you speak of, yeah. Yes. That's what she does for me, for sure, is she blesses my vulnerability yeah. as holy ground. Yeah. And I need that. Mm. Well, before we finish today, um, I just wanted to see if there was any final reflections. I know um, one thing. I one question I'd like to offer is: What is the relevance of Teresa today? Because I know this is our second season of turning to the mystics, and in season one we turned to a more contemporary mystic, Thomas Merton, um, and now we're turning to a more ancient mystic and. Just how do you see the relevance of that mystic to people listening today? Should I go for? Okay, I'll go first. Here's here's what I, here's what I think it is for me. 
when I was in the monastery, with, I was right out of high school, and I was had, I was in this cloistered monastery, and Thomas Merton was my director, and we would talk about this, you know, this, this, and um, I asked him if I could read Saint John of the Cross, and uh, I would sit with Thomas Merton, and we'd have a talk like this, and I'd walk out into the woods, and I had the Ascent of Mount Carmel with me. And I sat on the ground at the base of a tree, and I opened it up, and I read John of the Cross out loud. It was the same voice Thomas Merton was speaking. You know what I mean? It's the timeless lineage of, 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 of infinite love incarnating itself uh, down through the ages like this, and like now it's our turn. And so I think the relevance of Teresa is that she's so timeless in our passage through time, because it's the eternality of the fleetingness of everything. Like she's bearing witness to that, like, and to live it deeply with all our heart. And I think that's the relevance for for me, for her. Yeah. Mm. Beautiful. I I don't even know what to add to that. You know, as I said in the beginning, she's so intertwined with my own soul. I can't even tease out the strands of her in in me, um, except to say that that she gives me courage to speak truth, and that's what I hope that she can do for everyone. You know, I think that's why I, it. I'm so happy to have. Um, been able to translate her is my translations are faithful they're not renditions they're not versions they are they are literal translations but they're also intentionally uh, as accessible as possible so that I really crafted each sentence so that it would sing and it would sing to to people like me who aren't necessarily rooted in the Christian tradition. I think we already established that I'm not, although I find that I have a lot more intimacy with Christianity than than a, um, a lot of Christians I've met, to my surprise. <laughs> Maybe that's always true for the converts. Um, but that there is this, there, there's this way in which um, Teresa transcends Christianity, and I think all the mystics do. It's said that the mystics of different spiritual traditions have more in common with each other than they do with the fundamentalists of their own tradition. And I think that that is true for Teresa. She, Teresa Vavila, Rumi, um, you know, these different mystics from different spiritual traditions are singing the same song of love in these gloriously different voices that um, that create this symphonic resonance, I think, in all of us. So, so that's one of the things that I, f- I, for those of you who are listening who aren't exclusively Christian, you may find that Teresa speaks in a universal language of love that resonates with your own trans-religious reality. Thank you. And um, Mirabai, I've been, you know, preparing for today, um, reading your uh, book, Teresa Ravel, The Book of My Life, and it's so alive. I, I mean, I just, I, I feel um, your deep connection and 
just that real um, aliveness of Teresa through through the book. So thank you. Oh, thank yeah. you for that. That's exactly what my prayer has been, that you feel that aliveness of her on the page. Definitely. And it's been a treat to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, this has been just a rich and beautiful conversation, and I've just thrilled to get to know Teresa a little more deeply. Well, it is such an honor to be invited to have this conversation with you, Jim, and you, Kirsten, and and Corey, you behind the the scenes there. I feel you, your support and your and your um, connection to this material too, and all of you for yeah. allowing me to uh, to join the party for a minute. So, thank you so much. Yeah, and, and I want to thank you too for uh, your willingness to join us because it's our our affinity with each other is kind of bearing witness to the affinity that resonates to all the listeners. Really, you know what I mean? Like it's the kind of the interconnectedness and love that we're really sharing here. So I'm so glad you joined us. It's lovely. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Yes, this is, an, this is a living example of Anamkara is our spiritual friendship, mm. Jim. And it it's, um, yeah. I, I know that everyone can have these spiritual friendships in your lives. They are available to us and they're vital. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Centre for Action and Contemplation. Please consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend who might be interested in learning and practising with this online community. To learn more about the work of James Finley, please visit jamesfinley.org. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.